from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome back to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our host for this show is Rabbi Michael Beo, CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. And we're joined for today's conversation by David Serrero, an opera singer, actor, producer, director, author, and all-around Renaissance person. David, so glad to have you join us for this conversation. Thank you so much, Adrian, for having me. It's really an honor. Thank you for having me. At just a young age of 39 here, you've performed more than 2,500 concerts and performances all over the world in more than 45 countries. That's a lot of air miles, as well as a lot of rehearsals. You've starred in over 100 films and TV series, recorded over 50 albums, played more than 50 lead and title roles in opera, theater, musical repertoire. So we've got a lot of stuff that we want to talk about today. We'll talk about some of the roles you've starred in in the context of the conversation with the rabbi. But you were saying just before we turned on the, the mic that uh, you've just recently been nominated for a number of prestigious awards. Can you bring us up to date with that? Absolutely. Thank you so much, first of all, for, for having me. I'm really, really honored. Uh, it, it really means a lot. Uh, I have a huge admiration for, for you and also for uh, Rabbi Bayo. He is my, uh, I call him my Mashiach. You know, I, I love him so, <laughs> so much. So up to date, that happened two days ago, the, the, these very prestigious uh, awards from a very prestigious website, the most important one on Broadway called Broadway World. And I got nominated 10 times for five different categories uh, for Best Performer of the Decade, Best Opera Singer of the Year, and Best New Work for my adaptation of The Marriage of Figaro in uh, Sephardic uh, style, and uh, twice for uh, Best Production of a Musical, uh, once for Best Production of the Play, which includes... Uh, my uh, production of Romeo and Juliet in the Jewish style, which I wrote uh, based on Shakespeare also, and production of a musical, um, the musical about Anne Frank that I produced, uh, written by uh, Jean-Pierre Dida in France. Marvelous. Well, we wish you all the best in, in this endeavor. And of course, Rabbi, you've, you've known David for a while now. Why don't you get, catch us up to speed a little bit about uh, your your interactions. Yes, uh, David and I know each other, and uh, we actually had planned to bring David down here to Phoenix to do a live uh, performance. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our plans were derailed by COVID-19. So instead of that, we did a wonderful uh, uh, online um, presentation of his uh, Merchant of Venice adaptation and it was very well received and i am looking forward to invite david to phoenix at our jcc live uh, to do one of his other shows as soon as we can uh thank you i can't wait i really can't wait now running the gamut here shakespeare uh mozart of course many many others they were Jewish, huh? you know <laughs> <laughs> right right actually it's funny when i lived for many many years in the middle east Arab friends would tell me that, you know, Shakespeare was an Arab because truly his name was Sheikh Zubair. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. But the Jewish mothers, they, you know, I, I don't know, back in Morocco, back in France, they always, when there is someone great, they always try to find a Jewish connection, right? They always go, um, oh, Shakespeare, his real name was Shakespeareovich. 
and he changed. <laughs> right? Did they do that also with you guys? Yeah. I think he's Jewish. I think his his father is his uncle, his grandfather. Yeah. But you know what's interesting is why do we do that? You know, also growing up in Italy, I I remember I remember sitting in as a kid as a teenager sitting in a movie theater and uh, waiting to see all the names of the actors and to take pride in the fact that I would recognize a Jewish sounding last name. I know, I know. <laughs> no, but he goes, he goes, you know, sometimes from the, 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 in the old days, at least they were changing the names, like even Marilyn Monroe, you know, they were, uh, she, her name is Norma Jean Baker, you know, right. So they were putting names a little bit, you know, uh, and and also you know they 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 didn't want to be seen as a Jew boy you know uh, so they wanted to be seen more internationally and and, and get uh, you know but you know if your name I mean David Serrera I'm so far I'm okay but if I was born Abraham Moshe Bralinsevich <laughs> you know. <laughs> that maybe I'm gonna have had some thoughts, you know. <laughs> Rabbi, you've got some some interesting thoughts here. You want to provoke us with one of the things I like about about this show and the privilege I have of you know being a co-host here is that Rabbi Bayo is committed to conversations that, as we're already doing, are unexpected. The things that you would not necessarily think when you think of a conversation with the rabbi, right? But here, David, with your appearance on the show, we. We really have an interesting entree into a really rich discussion because some of the characters that you have played, Shylock, of course, in The, in the Merchant of Venice, uh, among many others I'd be interested to hear about, are widely known for the fact that their portrayal of Jewish figures is not positive. And I think this is something the rabbi wants to discuss a little bit. What? Why don't you kick us off with this, Michael? Tell us a little bit about what you want to explore here. Yeah, I would like David's opinion on the character of the Jew in these classical plays, you know, on the one end, um, as, as Adrian, uh, you said, you know, they're not known to be the most uh, pro-Semitic characters, uh, but is that all that there is to them? And that's that I would love to hear from David. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's the great things about characters is that you can portray them uh, at your will. Uh, of course, people have already a, a, a pre-existing um, vision of a character, but it's up to you and up to the director. In that case, uh, I'm, I'm the director, but it's really up to you to make the character the way you want. So some people, um, you know, uh, kind of see Shylock as a, as a villain, you know, um, in the old days, that play was portrayed as a comedy. It was registered and listed as a comedy, uh, which is interesting because the Jew of Mata is a tragedy from which it was supposedly um, uh, based from. Um, but what, what is interesting here is that I wanted to put Shiloh almost as a hero, you know, uh, as a, a very honest man who got betrayed and who tried to regain his honor. That was one of his challenge. And then he loses, he, he gets the pound of flesh. And at some point, he the yamaka is taken from him, which is what I added in the play. It's not in the original play. Um, so of course, in a way, he got his pound of flesh, pound of flesh taken from him. 
because that's the yamaka. So everybody can interpret the character uh, at their at their own will. Uh, I've seen a version of Othello in hip hop. You know, uh, I've seen you know Shylock could be uh, arrive and say hi guys, how are you? You know, he could arrive like this, or he can be you know this you know very very mean, very uh, um, unlikable, I would say, or he can be really someone who even has some humor, who wants to make peace with his friends, which is the way the way I saw it. Thank you, David. How come the most people view Shylock negatively? I mean, clearly we can see Shylock in a positive way, like you like you do, like you try to to give it that spin, but. Do we know what was the Shakespeare intention, or we have no idea? Well, we we can buy, base ourselves on a couple of things. The first one is that at that time there was some sort of a strong anti-Semitic uh, feeling. Well, throughout the course of history, anyway, but <laughs> just at that time, you know. But there was uh, um, this rumor about this doctor named Dr. Lopez, who supposedly uh, poisoned the queen, etc., and was a Sephardi Jew, you know. So there was that kind of strong hate around. Uh, then there was a big success right before with the Jew of Malta by Christopher Marlowe. And you can see a lot of the same because I played both, you know. I played Barabbas and I played Shylock. Um, you can see a lot of the same mechanic of the play. Um, him talking to his Hebrews that he calls, uh, then a difficulty with the Duke, with the, with the, the state itself, you know, because let's not forget that it's not just a conflict in the show, uh, with him and another person. There is also a conflict with the state. So you have this holy triangle. He, he ends up having both the state, the Duke of Venice on one end, or the King of Malta in the Jew of Malta and a particular person who wants him wrong, you know, uh, not wants him wrong, but he takes revenge on him. Um, so people see it that way, but that's what he's saying also, Shylock, is that um, the villainy you teach me, I will execute. It should go hard and I will better the instruction, you know, so Basically, he's saying, yeah, you complain that I'm like this, but guess what? If that would happen to you, you do the same thing. You know what I mean? So uh, it's like when we see uh, um, someone, you know, who finds out that all his children, God forbid, have been killed by someone and that that person wants to take revenge against that murderer. You know, we can be like, no, you should leave this in the hands of the justice, of the etc. But how would we feel if we were in that position? God forbid, we'd never have to be in that position. But that's, you know, it's it's interesting in that in that sense also. David, let me ask you: What led you to decide to take these classical plays and give them a different twist? I knew that someday I'd be talking with you. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's for me the biggest motivation. You know. You and Adrian, you know, no, it's, it's, I will tell you, it's, um, um, I've always done, of course, I've done for many years, the theater, very strict, exactly the way it's written. Uh, I remember I had directors 
who, um, and even some critics who told me he breathed in between a phrase, you know, or he didn't mark the comma, you know, correctly, you know. So uh, this is how, to tell you how surgical, you know, is is sometimes classical theater or even classical opera, because I come also from that background. So I've done that many times and for many years, but I've always liked to add my twist. So it was not necessarily Sephardic at that time, but it was taking classics and making them my own uh, because I grew up watching also the Rat Pack, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, I, I, you know, the uh, Niro Pacino, but also a lot of people of the burlesque musical stuff, uh, stand-up comedian, um, people have their own universe that the names won't ring a bell in the U.S., but um, that kind of inspired me. And so I grew up having all of that, and I added all these origins into the classics. And so, and after really to bring the Sephardic twist was the relationship I have with the American Sephardic Federation, uh, the Center for Jewish History in New York, and they have this beautiful venue, and, and I wanted to do the the merchant of Venice and I spoke with him. I said, look, um, um, technically Shylock is Sephardi because he comes from Italy. So how about we do it together? You know, and the thought, you know, originally that I meant only me to do a lecture of Shylock, you know, a lecture of the merchant of Venice. And, and I invited them to the dress rehearsal, which was in the same building where they are located. So they didn't travel very far, but they, they, they came and they saw full production with actors, with props, with in a venue where they never had any shows before. You know, that's not made for shows. And um, and and then they were like, "Wow, that's amazing!" So let's do more stuff. And of course, you know, we the, it's been very very successful. And and um, you know, it's always the result of a great equation of. Uh, of bringing these great classics, understanding not to create an audience fatigue, bring also, I always say, you you don't have to be British to like Shakespeare, you know? Uh, you don't have to be Jewish to like the Filkerfish, you know? Um, so, so I always wanted to do... Um, not all Jews like a gefilte fish. I agree with you. That's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. And I'm, you know, I like it. I like it. I mean, I like it, you know? But I, I like better the Sephardic food, the Moroccan tafina, you know. Michael, we I have to cook sometimes for you. Yeah. 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 Adrian also, you have to, to, to try it. So, I would travel very far for a good tagine. <laughs> ah, well then I know the place in New York. So um so basically um it worked very well and the idea was to bring also the Jewish culture, uh, even though in America it's very different, the Jewish culture in America than it is in, in Europe, because in Europe it's like the Jews and then the normal people on the other end, you know. But in America, I always felt that uh, the Jewish culture is part of the American culture, you know. Um, if you look at, you know, the Marx Brothers, you know, it's it's the start of a lot of great comedians, you know, who really uh, like the, the, the Jewish comedy, the Ashkenazi comedy. And um, and so the idea was to bring the Jewish culture with the Sephardic twist, which usually uh, is very Ashkenazi, especially theater, it's, you know, Yiddish theater, etc. And to bring it into these classics, but to make it for everybody, you know, so that everybody um, can uh, can enjoy. You know, when I listen to Louis Armstrong or or Ella Fitzgerald, I don't feel I'm listening to 
uh, an African-American artist. I'm feeling I'm listening to a great American artist, you know. So even, the, you know, we can talk about culture, but I wanted to make it really for everybody. And the material is amazing. You know, Tello, The Merchant of Venice, um, these are really timeless uh, production. And, and uh, when I did it for the first production in 2015, uh, there was that big thing in, in the UK where um, one deputy, Jewish deputy, was uh, called a Shylock in, in the middle of um, assembly, you know. So imagine at the Senate, one one person being called a uh, Jewish, called Shylock. So that was, people started to talk a lot about it. So in 2015, um, it came also at the, at the time, and there were a lot of articles where it was written, uh, Shylock is my name. And then that was the beginning of an article. So it came out at a great time. You know, one of the things that's come up over and over in this show in many different conversations, but we've never really tackled directly is the question of being Sephardi and the relationship between the, your traditions. David, you're from Morocco originally and and uh, Rabbi Michael Beo is from Italy. How do you see the this the importance of being Sephardi as fitting into kind of the expression of what you do now, David? So it's a very good question. So Sephardi, we are known are being very, you know, uh, uh, I would say very expressive. You know, we talk a lot with the hands. We're very, um, we talk loud. Uh, you know, we, we, we you have, just described Italians. <laughs> you know, that joke is. Do you know why Italians, they can never speak at the police interrogatory? It's because they have the handcuffs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, Sephardi, we, we are very much um, uh, like that. And we, we always joke that uh, when uh, Ashkenazi is having a great time, you have to check his pulse to see if he's still alive. You know what I mean? So... So you, we, we always have, of course, this, this very uh, naive uh, jokes, you know. But um, so we're very expressive. So the way, uh, of course, that impacted me the way I did Shylock. I did it with a lot of energy, and uh, and I believe also it. I don't think it changes really the fact that I'm Sephardi, but it's mostly how I felt is that at that time. Uh, I got robbed by my ex-best friend who robbed all the money I had, you know. So I was kind of zero, you know, and started, you know, lawsuits and all this stuff. And, and I was really, really didn't have a dollar in my account. It was a very difficult time. While before I was like what someone would call a wealthy person, you know. So uh, basically I knew what it felt, the betrayal, you know. I knew how it felt the really like give me my money my money you know and at a time when shylock um when he's offered three times the money um i really added stuff that were not in the play that uh the the, the character of basanio uh the one who comes back with all the money he takes he grabs all the coins and throw them at shylock's face you know uh, when they are the trial toward the end of the play. And and then you see, of course, it doesn't last very long on my face. It falls right away on the floor, you know. And then I pause at that moment and look on the floor to show that 
when you have all that money, if you don't have the your connection with people, if you don't have humanity, all the money you have falls. It it means nothing. And then I waited and then I put my feet on the money, you know, to show that your integrity is also more important than money because money comes and go, you know. But if you don't invest in people, you know, um, once you have lost everything, people is what is left to you, you know. So um, after I went down, I grabbed one coin and then I said, if each part of the ducats was in six parts and each part worth 5,000 ducats, I would not take it. I would have my bond, you know. So um, th- this is also how I felt at that time, you know. And it teaches us about uh, revenge. It teaches us about uh, justice. But I, I, you know, the, the expression to the audience um, was very thrown out there. You know, it was uh, a little bit, you know, like when Italian amore, ciao, you know. Uh, even when we sing opera, we always study the Italians because even when I warm up my voice, I always go, amore, ciao, and I direct, I put my hand near my mouth and I th- um, deploy basically my hand, you know, to, to direct the sound to always be projected forward, you know. So I believe, um, you know, Maybe an Ashkenazi would have done it more, had not the Jew eyes. It is, more, you know, more introverted. You know, is it not like this? Da, 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 da. And me, I did it more. He have betrayed me, hate me half a million. You know, like more um, thrown out there directly to uh, the audience. And at, at that particular moment, just to make a note, which was kind of never done uh, before, was that famous monologue, Have Not a Jew Eyes, uh, which is very interesting because uh, it's the greatest when we spoke about is the plain anti-Semitic, etc. I said, read this monologue. It will tell you that it is actually the greatest, um, I would say, advocacy against anti-Semitism. Um, uh, that's because he, it really tells it all. You know, it really tells it all. And uh, so what I did actually at that time is is usually we work with what is called the fourth wall, which means we pretend that there is no audience, you know. Uh, so, of course, me and my staging, I, the audience for me is always my priority. So I always make sure that they see the face of actors, that the speech is clearly said, uh, and that people can communicate because actors have to communicate emotions, but also they have to be very informative about the story. They have to be able to carry a story um, because that's the reason why that show is still around after 400 years. It's because um, it's because of the story. You know, uh, if it was with, because of a, a performance, we, we know about it, you know. Uh, but what, what, what I can tell, tell you is that what I did at that time is that instead of talking to Salerio, to the uh, Shylock talking to his friend, uh, to, to the friend of his enemy. Um, what I did is that I turned and addressed the audience directly and said, he had betrayed me. And then I went to the audience and I looked at the audience right on the eyes. And I swear to you, 
there was not a single, even a, br- a breath that you could hear in the air. Like the time really, really, really stopped, you know, uh, because no one had never basically put people's nose into this mess that is um, the lack of justice and anti-Semitism and any type of uh, discrimination, etc. So that perhaps, I'm sorry for the long answer, but that perhaps is the the what what was so sephardic about it. And also, uh, I simplified a lot of the language. There were a lot of words that even for native American speaker, native English speaker for American people, they would be hard for them to understand. And, uh, and they don't have people tend, people who do Shakespeare, they tend to forget that the audience doesn't have the script in front of them, you know, uh, and they have to, to understand this is why uh, Shakespearean actors, they kind of rush, you know, I would say, give a pause so that the audience can process that image, you know. Uh, so that's exactly what I did, you know. When I say, uh, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, you know, um, uh, squandered my nation, you know, always give a little pause so that the audience can can feel it, but also you have to be able as an actor to use the silence, to use the breathing, etc. Uh, between the lines, uh, not everybody can do it uh, these days. But um, that's uh, basically the idea to also simplify uh, the language and make it an hour fifteen, an hour twenty. Because Sephardi, we like to eat. You know, we cannot wait three hours, the plane, eat after. That's, you know, I wanted to eat after. I was like, where are the bagels with salmon, you know, with cream cheese? You know, where are they, you know? <laughs> I, you know, think going back to Adrian's question, uh, you know, half of me is a Sephardi, half of me is Ashkenazi. And I was always... Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I always say, uh, you know, um, my family came originally from Spain and went to Turkey I just happened to be born in Italy. Going back to Andrew's question, my experience has always been the Sephardi Jew within an Ashkenazi environment. And what I found here in America is that very few non-Jews understand that not all Jews come from Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that part of what I try to teach is that Jews come in all kinds of shapes and colors and backgrounds and cultures. Um, And like, for example, I know that for the typical American, maybe they see me as being Caucasian, white. That's not my own self-definition. I don't see myself in that way. Uh, My life experiences has not been like that. Um, I'm an immigrant in this country. Um, when I speak English, um, I don't think anyone would think that I am from New England. And the same is for uh, the same is for David. Yeah. So I think that part of what I try to do is to teach and show that uh, Judaism is a multifaceted, uh, both religion and culture, and. Uh, and we have a huge spectrum of uh, of backgrounds and opinions and culture that we bring. So, for example, culturally, 
I may be much more similar to a Catholic Italian than to a American Jew from New England. Yeah, right. Religiously, I have more in common with the American Jew that has been here seven generation from New England, maybe. So, but those interconnections, I think, are very important because often um, we, as a community, we are painted with one color, and we have multi- multiplicity of colors. You know, one of the things I was just talking to my own boys about, because the way that history is taught, the way that U.S. history is taught to Americans has been so Eurocentric, even the fact that the history books start on the East Coast, when in fact the history of human settlement in the Americas starts on the West Coast. I did not know that. Yes. And it starts with the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth Rock, when in fact the history not only of European colonization is much older than that. And in fact, the first religious pilgrims, to use that same word, they didn't use it themselves, was in fact a community of Spanish Jews that settled in New Mexico in the 1400s. So the way in which we talk about not just my history and your history, right, which you could say are very separate. I'm a, a white suburban American kid from, you know, the outskirts of L.A., right? But in fact, this country was settled and, re- and shaped by Spanish immigration and domination, which had its ugly side as well, but that the oldest community of religious people seeking freedom to practice their religion was Spanish Jews who then settled New Mexico. And then you don't read about this in the in history I book. thought that the first group of Jews that came to this country were uh, Jews from Portugal that escaped the uh, Inquisition that uh, had reached them in Brazil. And they were trying to go back to Holland. And this group of 13 Jews got uh, attacked by pirates or something happened and they ended up in New York. So I'm not familiar with yeah. the earlier. And a permanent settlement, which the, the roots of which continue to this day, although they've taken other forms, as crypto Jews living in Portugal and Spain have a community that has taken its right. own historical trajectory. One of the things that this leads us to as we as we wrap up here, I'd love to get your, both of your thoughts on this, is the extent to which reclaiming a version of the classics or the past in this case, right? David, you're you're reimagining some characters that have been defined by others and you're bringing a new perspective and, and new life to the text and to the music through doing that. Rabbi Bayo, here you are leading a community in the desert <laughs> far away from any of the places that you, you know, grew up in. Uh, th- there's a sense in which this interplay of past and present and the ability to reimagine rethink, recreate some of that seems very, very powerful. What are your thoughts, uh, Rabbi Bayo? And we'll give David the last word here. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, uh, don't they say that there's only, what, the seven stories in uh, human uh, history? And we just take one of those stories and we try to adopt it to our time. I, and I think religiously also, uh, that that is the role of a good teacher and a good rabbi. Meaning we have to go back and and dig into our past, uh, our uh, text and our culture and our traditions 
but we cannot expect that they will fit one-to-one in 2020 uh, Phoenix. So we need to find a way how to, some call it adapted, uh, or fit them, or find a way how how to make the puzzle work. So it's always, a, 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 as a rabbi, uh, and as, a, as an educator, as a teacher, and also as somebody that leads uh, this organization, I always try to dig in the past for the values and the teachings of the past, but then we have to give it a current modern uh, expression. Uh, if we do not give it a current and modern expression, um, then the past will be forgotten and the value and the teachings of the giants before us will be lost in history books. And I think that part of what David does and part of what I do is that we don't want that to be forgotten in the history books. We want it to bring it to life. Wow. I, I couldn't agree more on what you said, uh, especially the part that concerns me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's absolutely true. I, you know, I, I compare Michael. Uh, I call him Michael. Uh, originally, I call him Rabbi Bayo, but I, I love so much this man that he is part of my family. So uh, when I say Michael, I, of course, mean uh, Rabbi Bayo. But, um, you know, I compare Rabbi Bayo to Moses because he's in the middle of the desert. You know, <laughs> and he's bringing you know Jewish life and and Jewish programming and uh, yes, we we only um, exist by doing things. You know, whether it's through our writings, uh, through the performing arts, through our music, um, because it's it's where we're from originally. Because we now Jews, a lot of Jews, not all a lot, but. Uh, some Jews own buildings, own real estate, or own the car, own stuff. Uh, but back in the days, it was our tradition that the only thing, because we were chased so much from one place to another, was our intellectual property. This is why the, you had Jews lawyers, you had Jews doctors, you had Jews uh, sewer, tailor, uh, things like that. And, and indeed, that culture, especially in 2020, um, has to be adapted into the new media and the new mediums. Um, now people rather watch a documentary of an hour uh, rather than read a book of 300 pages. You know, uh, let's face it. Um, that's why Instagram, they have videos of one minute. TikTok, they have short formats of 10, 15 seconds because they know that... Uh, People now suffering of uh, attention disorder, and, and uh, even thanks to the lockdown, uh, I was able to do stuff that uh, finish books that I have written and plays that I have written that usually I never have time to finish because I have something else happening, calls and stuff. So um, we definitely need the, the this culture culture to be to be preserved, and uh, and indeed, uh, indeed to. You have not to be scared to bring your culture out there, you know, because you're going to face people on every side. You're going to face your own people, your own community, uh, because you have to sell twice more, you know, because I have to sell myself being in it 
you know, and I have to sell the play and I have to sell an adaptation of it. You know, uh, it's like an artist who has to uh, comes out and sings a new song. They have to sell also the song. People have to like the song, rather sing a song that is already a success. So people, even if they don't like the voice, they know they like the song, they like the groove of it, you know. So um, it's it's a bigger challenge, it's a bigger risk. Um, but uh, rules, I meant also to be to be pushed, to be maybe broken, not the law, to never break the law, but to be also, especially in the arts. Otherwise, we would have never had a Picasso, we would have never had a Mondrian, we will have, you know, we will have stayed with the classes and we will never have Jackson Pollock, we never have Chagall, you know. Uh, so it's, uh, we, 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 we need to be able to break these rules and, and to, to create what at the end is good for the audience because that's how I base myself from the audience. You can have the best thing on paper, the best thing for the art world, whatever it is, for the critics, but at the end, it's the audience. And there is that great phrase in the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, where when he is told, earn the crowd, win the crowd, and you will earn your freedom, you know. Um, and on another marketing aspect, you know, um, you need really, really a lot of money, but like millions to really stand out of others. Imagine you have a thousand people singing the exact same note than you than you do you know you need a lot of money to sing louder than these 1000 so that they can hear you or you can do what i do which is simply sing a different note so that you will stand out out of these 1000 people so this is actually what i've been doing um and sometimes people say oh yeah you do a lot of great marketing i said i can show you my accounting is at the end of the year, I don't even think I, I spend uh, not even 0.1, maybe 0.4, 0.5%, not even half a percent of uh, my budget goes to marketing and advertising. It's only if you can do something that is really uh, unique. But, you know, it takes more time, more energy, and you have to be willing to do it. You know, I have a record label. And I have a lot of artists who tell me, yeah, I want to do something that sounds like this and sounds like that and sounds like that. But I want my stuff to be unique. I said, you will never be unique because it will always sound like the, the three people that you mentioned. So um, you you have to be willing to, to go that way. After you like it, you don't like it. It's not a story. But um, you have to have the will, the desire to do something uh Unique and one day it pays off, you know, it pays off. Thank you, David, very, very much for joining me in uh, for this podcast conversation with the rabbi. Thank you, Adrian. If everything is a remix, then fortune favors the brave, the creators, the people who are willing to put it all together differently. Uh, David Serrara was certainly one of those people. It's it's uh, no, no mystery why he's been named one of the 15 most influential Moroccans worldwide. David, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Adrian, it's really an honor. I really appreciate your time and, and your generosity. And uh, Rabbi Bayou, I don't know what to tell you besides the fact that I love you from the bottom of my heart. You're a very big influence 
And uh, I really appreciate you. And God bless you, my dear friend, for what we do doing. And the Jewish culture owes you a lot, a lot, a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.